Today, we're choosing to cover a case that scared the crap out of me growing up. I don't remember how I found out about the case. I remember watching reenactments of it and my mom talking to me about the case. So this was just pure nightmare fuel for me when I was younger. In researching all of the cases I do and watching shows on investigation discovery and binging Criminal Minds whenever I can, I've learned some pretty disturbing things. One of which is that my parents were actually right. I totally needed to watch out for strangers and people that I did know for that matter when I was a child. Child abduction statistics are enough to scare you into never letting your children out of your sight. Every 40 seconds, a child goes missing somewhere in the United States. There are three designated types of kidnapping. A family kidnapping, where an immediate member of your family, a parent or grandparent, takes a child more often than not because of a custody dispute. These cases make up 49% of abductions. The other two are more sinister, as the intentions for the child are not good. Acquaintance kidnappings make up 27% of abductions, and this is where the child is taken by someone he or she knows. The final is a stranger kidnapping, which of course is self-explanatory, and this makes up 24% of all abductions. One in every 10,000 children reported missing is not found alive. In the cases where the children are murdered, 74% of them are females, and 74% of them were murdered within the first three hours of their abduction. So everything we just told you is scary, but unfortunately it's just a reality in our society. However, there are things we can do to protect our children, like tell them to hang out in groups or play it safe by playing close to the house. Even stay inside the house if you want to be super safe. But what if you do all those things? What if your beautiful 12-year-old daughter is with her friends? What if she's sleeping in her own bedroom? She should be safe, right? I mean, what kind of maniac would abduct a girl from her bedroom in the middle of a sleepover with her two friends? Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Mark and Eve Class had a daughter, Polly Hannah Class, on January 3rd, 1981. The couple who lived in Fairfax, California, divorced a few years later, but there was no bitterness. The two remained close friends. They agreed that Eve would have custody of Polly and that Mark was welcome to stop by or visit anytime he wanted. And he really had like weekend visitation and they split every other holiday. Because she was a single mother, it was difficult for Eve to find jobs, jobs that would even take her. And then once she found a job, if it didn't accommodate her arrangement of being an only mother, it made things really hard. So she was constantly seeking new employment. And this caused her and her young daughter to have to move around a lot. And as a result of this, Polly became shy and had difficulty making new friends. A lot of this is going to change in 1986 when her mother is going to marry Alan Nickel. Nickel had three other children from a previous marriage, and they often stayed with him. Polly's mother has another daughter with her new husband in 1987, meaning Polly now has three step-siblings and a half-sister. Polly loved all of her siblings, and for the most part, their life was pretty happy. The one thing she didn't like, though, was her new stepfather. Those in the family recall it being nothing too serious, but Polly just wanted to make sure that Nichols knew he wasn't her father. And to do that, she questioned his authority quite often. And Nichols was known to make the joke that whenever the kids challenged him, he would say that they were pulling a Polly. Now, the way people talk about it, they say it was done pretty lightheartedly, but something must have eventually gotten to Eve because the couple does end up separating themselves. I mean, yeah, I mean, it could be in a culmination of things. Yeah, like, I mean, no one likes when somebody reprimands their child. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like that can be... Complicated situation. Yes, that could really, like, put some stress on a relationship, I'm sure. Yeah, and I'm sure it puts stress on a relationship if your child from a previous marriage doesn't like the new person you chose. So... Yeah, definitely. 
But Polly probably questioned his authority most because she had a really strong connection with her father and also her paternal grandparents. She always went on trips with her grandparents to places like Mexico and Yellowstone National Park. She also was always with her father. He never missed a weekend or every other holiday. Her father remained close with Polly's mother and helped her each time they moved. Mark Class was even able to be a part-time aide in Polly's school as he ran a Hertz car rental office within San Francisco's Fairmont Hotel. In 1993, Polly was 12 years old. She loved Mel Gibson and had a Joe Montana poster up in her bedroom wall. She read Archie comics and Judy Bloom books. Her favorite foods were hot fudge sundaes and popcorn. She was especially fond of her two cats, Spooky and Milo. Although she was still shy and reserved, she was known to have a dramatic streak, especially amongst those who knew her best. That's usually the way like preteen girls are, is they're shy outside, but then like you see their quirky personalities around yeah. people they're comfortable with. That's true. She loved being in the school band and performing in the school plays, and she hoped one day to be an actress. Everyone loved watching Polly approach her teen years. She was beautiful. Everyone always commented on how adorable her dimples were. However, there was one thing that both Mark and Eve wanted to work on with their daughter. She was very afraid most of the time, and from what it sounds like, she suffered from anxiety. At night, she had an intense fear of the dark. She could not sleep without a nightlight on, even if someone else was in the room with her. As we know from the stats above, a not-so-irrational fear of being abducted. She talked about it constantly with her parents, who tried to reassure her that she would always be safe. Mark remembered telling his young daughter that everything would be all right and that I'll always be there to protect you. When Polly was 12 years old, her mother separated from her second husband. Just Polly, her mother, and her younger sister Annie were now living together. The three girls resided in the affluent suburb of Petaluma, which is an hour's drive north from San Francisco where her father lived. The town has a low crime rate and was presumably safe. They lived in a modest, pale blue house close to the downtown region of the street. The stores and busy street of Western Avenue could be seen from their adorable craftsman-style home that California is so known for. There are windows surrounding the house, including two sets of bay windows, all of which could be accessed easily from the street. It was in this house... On Friday, October 1st, 1993, that Polly convinced her mother to have a sleepover. Polly had her two best friends staying the night, Kate McLean and Jillian Pelham. The three went to middle school together, and they'd grown incredibly close, and that's because they shared a bond. All three of them played the clarinet in the school's band. That's adorable. That is adorable. Really quickly, though, I have to say, well, it's going to sound stupid, but like when I think California, since I've never been to California, right? Three things come to mind. Surfboards, full house. Okay. And the train cars, like the trolley cars. Okay. All and of that's these all stories I know have about California. This story has none of those things. I know. But when I think California, that's all I know. I'm glad that you really gave us that piece of information. <laughs> I'm just saying. So okay. like that's how like uninformed I am about It seems like you're staying solely in Southern California. I, <laughs> I guess Northern California doesn't exist for you. It's not. Okay. I've never been there. Have you been there? No, I've never been, but I have a knowledge of geography. Um, yes. Um, I, la- <laughs> I lack that a little bit. What can I say? I'm in my own little East Coast bubble. It would be like a whole state. Like, think of the East Coast. It would be like having a state that stretches from New Hampshire to Georgia. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Like, all of those different atmospheres. Yeah, totally. That's what I think of. Surfboards, trolley cars, and full house. Okay, good. Like when you describe the house, this is I'm why I mainly house. do the research, just so you guys know, because <laughs> that's what John brings to the table. <laughs> you definitely don't want me to read either. So the three friends were doing each other's makeup and posing for silly pictures. They were having an amazing time. They decided to play a board game called Perfect Match. So I've never heard of this before, so I looked it up, and it's literally the most perfect game that 12-year-old girls could play at a sleepover. I have the description. Are you ready for this one? It's a pretty, pretty serious game. I'm ready. Here's the game where girls try to guess how their friends will answer totally personal questions. 
Then they prove what they really know with a special electronic hearts that beep when the answers match. So with multiple choice questions, boy picture cards, and their own lists of friends, teachers, and other people, and things they know, there'll be plenty of giggles, chatter, and fun. That's like so cool. I really wish I had that game. It's like you, you could put your own teachers and like, like you could say funny things. I don't know. That would be pretty cool, I guess. But we could do it like murder style, like murderer style. Ooh. Okay. That would be cool. That would be cool. Maybe we'll try it and see how it's it goes. It's kind of like, it, it sounds like Guess Who. Yeah, it does sound like Guess Who. So when the game starts winding down, Polly decides that maybe it's time that they head to bed. She volunteers to get the girls sleeping bags while they put the board game away. Still laughing, Polly opens her bedroom door and stops dead in her tracks. In a complete juxtaposition to the three innocent girls in their pajamas is a man in the doorway. The intruder is middle-aged and muscular. He is holding a knife in his hand. Before the girls could even react, he says, Don't scream or I'll cut your throats. The three girls cower in the corner of the room, clutching on to each other, being as quiet as they can. Who lives here, he asked. Although they were scared, Kate and Jillian wondered if this was an early Halloween practical joke. Polly loved playing jokes, but when she responded, shaking and on the verge of tears, the girls knew immediately that this was no prank. I do, Polly says. I'm just doing this for the money, the stranger said. And Polly offered him a box that she had that held $50 in cash, but he refused it. He told all three girls to lie down on the floor. He tied their hands behind their backs and placed hoods over their heads. I'm not going to hurt you, he told them. I'm just doing this for the money. Please don't hurt my mom and sister, Polly said to the man. And with that, he easily picked her up and walked towards the bedroom door. He looked back at the two girls and told them to count to 1,000 before they did anything. And that's when he left with Polly class. The two girls did not wait and they didn't count to 1,000. Rather, they struggled until they could get themselves untied. And at 10.45 p.m., the frantic girls ran into the room where Eve Nichols was sleeping with her younger daughter, Annie. They woke her up and told her what happened to them. She ran throughout the house to check and see if it was all true. And when she realized it was, she called 911. The Petaluma police responded immediately. They got a description of the man from the two girls. He was tall, bearded, and white. He was muscular and wearing dark clothing. Then they broadcasted that information through police radios throughout Sonoma County. However, not to every town. This mistake was something the department would come to regret because about an hour and 15 minutes after Polly was taken from her house, a woman named Dana Jaffe called police. Jaffe lived about 25 miles away from Polly and Jaffe had gotten back to her house at around 11.30 p.m. and paid and relieved her babysitter, 19-year-old Shannon Lynch. Lynch drove away from the house and was making her way down the hill of the large property. She reached the bottom of the hill, and she saw a strange sight. A stranger in dark clothing appeared to be looking into a broken-down pinto. This was an odd sight because they were still on Jaffe's property, and no cars really came out this way. It was a very desolate location, and in fact, always unnerved Lynch when she babysat. I know what it's like to babysit in like a completely isolated area, and it's really scary. So you're kind of on edge the whole time. So her being on edge, leaving the property, and then seeing this stranger broken down on what essentially still is private property, had her on edge, which is good. You want to be kind of aware. Yeah, I mean, that's strange, and it always involves Ford Pintos and gremlins the worst cars and they're always sketchy yeah you're right but i guess because they're it must be a car that's just easy to break into as well that's why they're kind of well, always related in, in crime i feel like back then all cars were really easy to break into yeah i guess you're right so lynch cracked down her window to talk to the man as soon as she did he rapidly approached her vehicle and shoved his fingers through the opening in the window he yelled out to the young girl that he needed some rope first of all if you're broken down i advise that when someone stops to help you, you don't run at their vehicle, stick your hand inside, and scream that you need rope. Well, my whole thing would be, well, first of all, you're being weird as hell doing all that you just did. Yes, yeah. But, like, the fuck you need rope for? Like, what well, would you need rope for? The car was stuck in a ditch, so to pull it out. I get that. 
Yeah. But even regular rope wouldn't be able to have that type of strength to to do that. Pull the car up. It, it is a snap. small car. I still think it would snap. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, her first intention was to stop and help the man. But after he did all that, she had no intentions at all. And she waved the man away and drove off. Before she got home, she stopped at the first payphone she could find. She called Jaffe to let her know that there was a strange man on her property and that he had gotten pretty aggressive with her. Jaffe didn't want to take any chances alone in the house, an isolated area with her young daughter. So she grabbed her daughter, a baseball bat, and a can of mace and ran to her car. She sped away from her house and down the hill. It's pretty smart because you don't want to be in this isolated area with an aggressive guy. The nearest house was miles away. So she was like, let me get out of here while I still can. I mean, yeah, that's true. Avoided a horror movie. Like that's what she just did. (laughs) That was smart call. It's true. Now she knew where the Pinto was because Lynch had told her. And in fact, the Ford Pinto was still there. The sight of the car only made Jaffe drive faster. And when she got to the safety of the nearest gas station, she called the police to inform them of the incident and that the man was trespassing. The only problem was the station that she called never received the APB for a man in dark clothing. You see how the smallest mishaps just, yeah. it, just, it, just it screws everything up. It's crazy. So the police went to go check out the man in the broken down Pinto. He and the car were both there when the two uniformed officers arrived on the scene. The man that approached the two officers was large, very muscular, and really dirty. He had twigs in his thick hair, and he couldn't stop sweating. The entire time he talked to them, he kept wiping the sweat off of his face with his t-shirt. I know that feeling. That's my life every day when I'm loading my As van a sweater. up for... Yeah, pretty much. But you're sweating because you're sweating, not because you may have just kidnapped a girl from a sleepover. Very true. No, I don't do those things. Yes. Different kind of sweat. I'm a good person. (laughs) We believe that. (laughs) Good. This was odd that he was sweating so much because it was a particularly cold night. So they asked him what he was doing, and he said that his car had gotten stuck in a ditch. So what are you doing way out here in the middle of nowhere? The officer asked him. And the guy said that he was just sightseeing. So the officers were pretty skeptical of this because first, they are in the middle of nowhere. There's really not that much to see. just woods. And it's the dead of night. So even if he wanted to see those woods, he couldn't see them. They asked him for his name and whether or not he had any active warrants. He said his name was Richard Allen Davis and that he did not. The officers ran a check on any outstanding warrants, and as they were waiting to hear back, Davis nonchalantly took a can of beer out of a half-empty six-pack in his car, and he cracked it open and started sipping. I mean, that's pretty ballsy. I mean, I know, like, it's not current, but, like... No, 1993. I mean, it's it's pretty... It's not like when my dad used to tell stories about people driving in the 70s with, like, open bottles of alcohol and cans of beer in their car and, like, it not being too big like being a big deal but like 1993 definitely a little bit more stricter rules there was there's a stigma, mad mothers against right. drunk drivers right. there was definitely a stigma to it like the way it is and now. you no would get gonna, arrested yeah, yeah exactly like you don't want to be drinking and driving yeah and i mean craft- i wouldn't say stigma i would just say like illegal activity well right well that's what i'm saying i mean he is <laughs> next to his car you would assume that he's been driving this whole time for him the crack of beer is pretty and dumb. it's a half empty six pack so it means he has been drinking right that's so pretty dumb yeah it was a little weird it's a it's a ballsy move to do in front of police officers who are checking for active warrants i agree so the officers luckily informed him that he couldn't do that so he shrugged down the whole can of beer and tossed it into nearby bushes Ballsy act numbered two and three, the chugging and the littering. Oh, my God. I would have just dumped it out. (laughs) So they told him that he had to pick up the can, but they didn't give him a citation for littering, which upsets me. I mean, (laughs) get him on something here. It's kind of rude. Well, at this point, I mean, he's not guilty of anything. Well, I would say it's disrespectful and it shows his disrespect to law enforcement. That is true. The warrant check came up clear. The officers radioed in and asked the officers who were with Jaffe at the station if she wanted him arrested for trespassing. She said that she didn't want to, him to be arrested, but she did want him gone. And because Davis spoke so coherently and was not acting drunk or nervous, the police saw no reason to arrest him either. Using a chain that Jaffe gave them permission 
to use via radio, the officers freed the Pinto from the ditch for Davis. After that, the man drove off. Now, if those officers would have run a background check on Richard Allen Davis, um, they would have found that he had prior convictions for robbery, burglary, assault, kidnapping, and a very long and detailed history of crimes against women. They also would have learned that Davis was on parole, and he was in clear violation of that parole. In fact, he, he even littered with it. But unfortunately, it's just, it's really not protocol to look into someone's background check when it's just kind of a routine stop. So it's not that it's at the fault of those officers, but that's the man that they pulled over. I also think it should come up that someone's on parole and it didn't. Well, yeah, you would think that if they were checking for any outstanding warrants that they would find that he's on parole. But it's not a background check. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it was interesting that the parole thing didn't come up. I mean, if I mean, I'm not saying they needed the you know the background check needed to come up, but for sure, I mean, if he was on parole, then like you said, he's violating his parole. That should have been as yeah. soon as they, that came up. Oh, okay, he's clear. Okay, well, is he? Uh, what is, the next thing would have been like, is he on past curfew? Right, or, like what's yeah. what's going on? That's weird. Well, only hours later at 9 a.m., a forensic team identified a palm print from within Polly's room, and it would take a month to come back but the palm print does come back to Richard Allen Davis. Now, this information was hidden from the media, as was his run-in with police the night of the kidnapping. So they kind of want to save themselves the embarrassment so they don't talk about that night with Jaffe. So the citizens of Petaluma immediately sprung to action. Local shop owners donated supplies and ran thousands of copies of Polly's missing posters and purple ribbons in support of bringing Polly home every shop and home in town. All proceeds were put into the reward for information that led to the finding of the young girl. Now, that reward money grew drastically when actress Winona Ryder, who had grown up in Petaluma herself, offered a contribution of $200,000. Wow. Yeah, it was really nice of her. She also, like, she was saying that she identified with her, like, this young girl who wanted to grow up and be an actress, that was her. Wow. I mean, it's really cute. It is really nice. It's kind of... You don't hear about those things too often. Yes. This involvement of a famous celebrity paired with the brazen and terrifying facts of the case led to the disappearance becoming national news. Two days following the abduction, the case was featured on America's Most Wanted. The show featured a sketch of the man that Jillian and Kate said they saw that night. The palm print was not identified until, like I said, months after the discovery. Therefore, at that time, law enforcement didn't know exactly who committed the break-in and abduction. The sketch was everywhere in the community. As in most cases, the closest to the victim were ruled out immediately. Polly's mother and father were asked to take a polygraph test, which they both passed. Unlike most abduction cases where awareness winds down, the case of missing Polly class was news for a very long time. And I think that's because it really calls to people's deepest, darkest fears, like the boogeyman exists. And that your children aren't safe anywhere. It's it's a scary thought. It is scary. And then you also have to think, well, is this is this person that's that committed a first kidnapping going to strike again? Like you're always exactly. concerned about the next one. Right. And it's hard to stop that, you know? It, it's hard because what he did was, like I said before, like so brazen and so ballsy, which we obviously do know about his personality. But that kind of man is scary to face because he doesn't care well he's also unpredictable yeah that's true so that's scary well all of his attention didn't help with the apprehension of davis when on october 19th he was arrested for drunk driving he while he was being held in a holding cell neither his arresting officer or the officer that put him in jail or the officer that was watching him in jail noticed just how much davis looked like the sketch of the man that abducted Pally class. He was let go after five hours and he drove away from the station in his 1979 white Pinto. So this is like... They could have stopped oh, the second gosh. time. They could have captured him. I hate when this happens. I know. In every story, I hate this because it's like you got the guy right there. You have him right there and nothing, nothing transpires. Right. Nothing. So those who supported the class family and the family itself were told by law enforcement that a lot of times high rewards can bring in answers. So this is why on October 25th, 
a benefit concert and auction was held to raise money for the reward. Many celebrities attended and performed, including Jefferson Airplane, Charlie Musselwhite, Michael Dugan, and Robin Williams. But whenever you have cases like this, you're going to find scam artists as well. And this is what is going to happen here. People are going to say they're collecting money for the Polyclass Foundation when in fact they're pocketing all of the, the money they collect. And this is what convinces Mark Class to make the foundation an official nonprofit. This way, people will know not to donate unless they're asking for money that's associated with the official organization. So Mark Class is going to ask a man named Bill Rhodes to take reins when it comes to the organization. Rhodes took an early interest in the disappearance. He's the one who printed all the missing posters of Polly the day after the abduction. Well, about a week after he's named the chairperson to head the foundation, many claims and allegations come out about Rhodes himself. A woman claimed that he molested her while she was nine years old, and she was actually bringing a civil case against him. The police did reveal to Mark Class that Rhodes was a registered sex offender, and he was caught masturbating in front of female children in 1967. And in 1968, he was arrested for threatening four girls with a knife and telling them to undress. Sounds a lot like what happened at the sleepover, doesn't it? Well, yes and no. He didn't tell them to well, undress. It's not, well, it's not over. Ah, okay. He did tell them to undress. Well, the guy at the thing didn't. I know what you're saying. With polyclass, he yeah. didn't. Yeah. He then blindfolded the girls and fondled them. Now, Rhodes himself was acquitted of the latter charges, but the first one stuck, the masturbating in public. However, um, it is the same kind of, like, I'm going to take on a lot of children and subdue them. Like, it's an escalation. It definitely is an escalation. So it could... Could you imagine that that information... Like, think about it in real time. Like, oh, God, this guy this has to be the guy. You would think, because of all the similarities. I mean, well, as far as what he's been charged with in the past, what he was accused of, I guess you can you can kind of connect them, right? And it could it could be him, maybe. You know, he's so close to the case. Why is he so you know emotionally uh, invested in this case, and and to help out the family? I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense. It does happen a lot where someone who did commit the crime gets themselves very involved in the investigation. Yeah. Whether they want to know information about the investigation or they want to relive the crime, they do it for different reasons, but they do kind of infiltrate the um, the investigation. Now, although Rhodes looked nothing like the sketch, this is a massive red flag. A sex offender who committed similar crime that involved himself deeply in the criminal investigation and its aftermath is usually the one who's guilty. But Rhodes did have an alibi. And he told police he was working with the investigation to make up for his previous crimes. Now, that's, this is something I totally don't buy. I think he was probably getting off on being involved in the investigation. I mean, it's really funny because right before you said that sentence, I knew that that was going to be his response. Because what else can you possibly say to not incriminate yourself or to not look like you're a weirdo? You know what I mean? Right. Oh, well, you know, I'm just making up for my bad deeds. Like, I mean, there's nothing else you could say. You've You're gotten right. caught. I mean, what do you, what could you possibly say to get yourself out of that? That's yeah. all you could say. <laughs> that is all you could say. Well, people still think that Rhodes was guilty, but a discovery by Dana Jaffe is what's going to save him. The woman was walking on her property with friends when they came upon items hidden underneath a bush. Those items were a dark sweatshirt red tights that were knotted up, a Rough Rider condom wrapper, an unrolled condom, strips of binding tape, and an item made of white cloth that looked like it was made into a hood. She immediately called the police after one of her friends wondered aloud if that man on her property that night was responsible for the kidnapping of Polly Class. This is what led the police to identify Richard Allen Davis, the same man whose palm prints only days later they would identify from within Polly's room. So now they have kind of circumstantial evidence is him being on the Jaffe's property and all of those items being found on the property. And now they have the physical evidence, which is his palm print in the room. Now, were they actively searching for him once they found out that that was his palm print? 
Um, well, they, the discovery of the items happened a few days before the, the palm print came back to be belonging to him. Okay. So once they find out that that was his palm print on at the crime scene, he's arrested two days later. Okay. So when he's brought in by police, he chose not to hide his face from the media that was gathered outside because this has a huge media following at this point. He is picked by Kate and Jillian out of a lineup. And five days after his arrest, Davis finally confessed to the kidnapping and murder of Polly Class. Okay, guys, we're going to take a break to hear from our show's sponsor today, Vistaprint. When you have a business of any kind, it's so important to feel professional, polished, and prepared when it counts. And that's right now. Being plugged in and prepared when an opportunity presents itself is crucial. But those moments happen all the time. So having a business card that shows how professional you are in your pocket, ready to hand out, is the first step to making something happen. Well, your next big opportunity is coming right now. And Vistaprint is here to help you own the now with free shipping on any business card in any quantity. You can choose whatever style, finish, shape, or paper you like and get free shipping. And because you can pick the colors, fonts, designs, and images, it means you can create something as unique and compelling as your business. So are you ready to get started? It's easy. Plug your information and logo into hundreds of fresh designs tailored to your type of company, or upload your own original layout. Then pick the paper, stock, style, and quantity that's right for you. You can even upgrade to a unique touch, like rounded corners. Finally, order and receive your cards with free economy shipping. And as if you needed any more reason to choose Vistaprint, you can feel good knowing that Vistaprint uses only carefully selected inks and responsibly sourced paper stocks. And your satisfaction is 100% guaranteed, or your money back. They'll always make it right. Vistaprint wants you to be able to own the now in any situation, which is why our listeners get free shipping on all business cards, any style, any quantity. Just go to vistaprint.com and enter promo code TCC for free shipping on all business cards, any style, any quantity. This is a limited time offer. So own the now at vistaprint.com and use promo code TCC. Again, guys, helping out our sponsors helps us out. All right, let's get back to the show. Just who is this guy who committed this murder? Richard Davis, who goes by the name of Rick, was the third of five children. His parents were both abusive alcoholics, but most of the violence was committed by his mother. When the couple divorced, Davis was 11 years old. His father was given custody due to his mother's violence. Davis, ironically enough, like Polly, was moved around a lot when he was a child. Davis's father would remarry three times, and each time Davis hated his stepmother. This, paired with his terrible relationship with his own mother, led to a resentment for females in his life. Davis's father was also mentally unstable. He saw hallucinations and would often go outside to shoot at them. Davis reportedly was violent with animals and committed petty crimes at a young age. He did get in trouble for setting a cat on fire. So it wasn't just like he was torturing animals. And at 17, he found himself in front of a judge who told him that because of his history with crimes, he could either go to juvenile detention center or enlist in the U.S. Army. Now, this is something that happened a lot, especially in the early 70s with the conflict in Vietnam. So... I mean, to me, that always sounded crazy. So is it a good idea to send a budding psychopath into an environment where he'd be able to commit all of his crimes that he wants and actually get rewarded for it? I mean, because what the United States was doing in Vietnam, there was a lot of, I would say, breaking of human decency in that war. So the fact that it was a policy or something that was encouraged was to be to send someone overseas versus going to jail probably wasn't a good idea to be sending yeah. people there. I mean, I don't want to get crazy into it, but I think that I think that back then they were just looking for any, I guess, to their eyes, me- uh, mentally or physically sound body to enter a, a war. You know, they, they didn't really care, I don't think. No, I don't think they cared, but it just, I think it led into the fact 
of all those war crimes that were committed by American soldiers, I think, you know, this didn't make it any better. No, you know what I, I mean? I mean, I, I hear you. I hear you. Well, Davis himself never actually went to Vietnam, uh, mostly because he was placed in the Army versus the Marines. He worked as a truck driver where he resumed his petty crimes, but the Army caught on to him quickly, and he was dishonorably discharged after 13 months of service. Davis left the Army in shape. He worked out obsessively, and, and he also now had an arm full of tattoos, mostly spiderweb tattoos. It is after his dishonorable discharge that Davis's crimes turned from petty to violent. Once he was back in California from Germany, he began to look up some of his old friends. He was trying to reconnect with people. On October 12, 1973, he was invited to a party at the home of Marlene Voris. Voris had been Davis's girlfriend. She was having a party because she had been accepted into the Navy and was very excited about her bright future. The party was successful, and everyone was having a great time, including Voris. But eventually the party wound down, and everyone began to leave. Davis was leaving the house when he told his friend that he just had to go back because he forgot something. His friend said okay and said that he would wait for him. After a few minutes, a single shot rung out, and Davis came running out of the house, saying that Voris had shot herself. Police found seven suicide notes on the scene. Now, this is literally a case within a case, because this is a point of contention, especially for members of the Voris family. Police ruled it a suicide, and others said that Davis had held that gun to her head while she wrote those notes, and he pulled the trigger. When the families questioned about what type of motives Davis had, I mean, it must have not been easy for him to sit at a party all night where someone's excited about their potential military career, whereas the military just dishonorably discharged him. And when you are dishonorably discharged from the military, it greatly affects your life. It's, it's almost you become a felon. Yeah, I mean, you really can't go anywhere with can't that. Can't get jobs. No. Can't really get like it's it. It kind of really destroys your future. Right. So seeing her bright future versus his non-existent future might have gotten to him. He might have been angry. Maybe there was a jealousy thing. This was his ex-girlfriend. So the family is convinced that Davis is the one that she was happy. She was excited about her future. I think it's very possible. That's actually cool. I'm and well, cool as in you know, like it the could story be another case a for story. sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, who's to say he didn't do that? I mean, he's definitely not sound, uh, you know, sound of mind, you know. When we hear about his future, I think it becomes more clear that I think he definitely was responsible for the murder of Boris. I think so. Just by what you, what we're talking about right now, it, it seems that that's probably the case. Right. But when the police don't say that it, it's a murder, they deem it a suicide. There's no investigation. So nonetheless, the police ruled no foul play. So Davis really never had to defend himself when it comes to the Voris murder or suicide. But a few weeks after the death of his former girlfriend, Davis was arrested for attempting to pawn various items that had been stolen from the community. This is the Lahonda community. He confessed to six burglaries that had happened within the town. He claimed that he committed the break-ins because he was hungry and needed money. And because of his dishonorable discharge, it was very difficult for him to find a job. For these burglaries, he served six months in county jail. Five weeks after his release, he committed another burglary, for which he received two years in jail. The next time Davis is released from prison, he waits two months to commit his next crime. But this is going to be an aggressive escalation. Davis explained later to a, to a court-appointed psychologist exactly what happened on September 24, 1976. It was 6 p.m. when Davis saw a young woman. Her name was Frances Mays. She was 26 years old and walking from her job to her car in a parking lot. Davis claimed that as he saw her walking, he heard a female voice in his head say, I wonder what it would be like to be raped. He believed that it was Mays who was speaking to him. She was the one that had asked his, this question. He told the psychologist that it was then that he decided to rape her and answer the question for her. As she was trying to get into her car, he approached her from behind, holding a knife. He told her to get inside and move over. 
He got in and took the keys. As he drove away, she started to cry. Shut up, he yelled at her. She told him not to hurt her and gave him her wallet. He took it and put it in his pocket. He told her that he just got out of prison and people were following him. He drove for a few minutes and then pulled off onto a deserted road. When he stopped, he unzipped his pants and told her, you know what I want you to do. Mays grabbed the knife from him and cut her own hands. The confusion of her bleeding and grabbing the knife gave her enough time to unlock the door and run out of the car. She started to flag down cars that were passing on the nearby highway, and she was lucky enough to flag down a patrolman on his way to work. The man stopped the vehicle, and when she said what happened, he approached Davis's vehicle with his gun drawn, and he was able to apprehend him. Wow. That's the best luck ever to just get him, because he probably would have gotten away with it if she didn't flag down that patrolman. Because he claimed that the voices made him do it, He was placed in the Napa State Hospital versus jail to await his trial. However, on December 16th of the same year, he escaped from the hospital and broke into the home of a 32-year-old woman. When he went into the woman's room, she was sleeping. He claimed that the same thing happened as before. He said he heard the woman tell him that she wanted to be bashed in the head. So he did. He took a fireplace poker and hit her across the face as hard as he could. He left as the woman woke up screaming. The next day, he broke into an animal shelter where he took a gun, ammunition, and drugs. Weird things to have in an animal shelter, but that's what he took. Three days later, he put a gun to a woman's head when she got into her car. He told her that he needed her to take him to Santa Rosa. The woman agreed, and as he reached down to get tape from his pocket... She saw the opportunity and drove away as fast as she could. Davis was able to hitchhike 70 miles north to La Honda, the town where he grew up in, where Darlene Voris committed suicide, supposedly, and where he committed those first six burglaries. There, he broke into a home and stole money and jewelry, but this time he would be caught. A neighbor saw someone go into the house next door and called the police. They arrived to the house quickly and were able to arrest him. Davis clearly didn't care when he got to his sentencing. When when he went through the whole court process for all of these crimes, because they're going to kind of try to lump them together, he told the judge that he really wouldn't stop and that if he could get away with it, he would have. Like, if he could have gotten away with everything, he would have done it all over again and he would commit more crimes. That was his attitude in front of the judge. So the judge is going to sentence him to one to 15 years in state prison and he ends up only serving six and he was released in 1982 and once released from prison he meets a woman who seems to be his perfect match sue edwards she is in her early 20s and at this point he's 28 years old she's a blonde who loves motorcycles and drugs in fact that's how they met she was his drug dealer the two became a kind of redneck trashy version of bonnie and clyde as they rode their bikes around california oregon and washington dealing drugs and committing robberies in late november of 1984 the couple went to the home of edward's sister of sue edward's sister's former lover they knocked on the door of the young woman's home and as soon as she opened it they said to her you are going to let us in and listen to us otherwise we will kill you your daughter, and your father. So she let them into her Redwood City home. Once inside, they ripped the phone from her wall, and Davis kept a gun pointed at her at all times while Edwards was robbing the house. At one point, she tried to make a run for the door, but she was quickly tackled by the couple. And after this, Davis pistol-whipped the young woman. The sight of all the blood made the woman scream, and she was told to stop or that they would shoot her. So eventually, she calmed down. Edwards then told the woman that they would have to go to the bank so she could withdraw money. The two women went into the bank where the woman, despite being in hysterics, having bruises and blood on her face, was able to withdraw $6,000. Edwards took the cash from her once they left and then she met up with Davis on her bike. The couple was able to rob a bank weeks later. And although police were right on their tail, they were able to get away because they had chains on their tires for the snow and the police vehicles didn't. 
but their reign was brought to an end when they were pulled over for a broken back taillight. When the officer ran their names for warrants, the warrants for the break-in, kidnapping, and robbery of the girl in Redwood City came up and they were both arrested. But Davis is going to take the rap for Edwards on this one. He says it's his idea and that he was the aggressor and that Edwards was just working because he told her to. Wow, that's surprising. Yeah. So Davis is sentenced to 16 years because of his history and Edwards, with no criminal history, and Davis testifying for her, was only sentenced to six months. Okay. So the next few, like, minutes of this podcast are going to be nuts, so just buckle up for this one. <laughs> Let it rip. Okay. So Davis is going to get a job while in prison. He learns how to work with, like, sheet metal, and the guy who's teaching him the skill says he's actually a really natural at it. And it's unfortunate that Davis is in jail because he could be making $40 an hour outside of prison in the 1980s while using this skill that he's learned because he just it happened so naturally. So it's really unfortunate that he has the life that he has. Edwards does get out of prison in her six months that she served and she gets married in 1988. Three months after her wedding, her husband is found with 23 stab wounds and a sliced throat. Edwards's lover confesses to the crime, and Edwards inherits $300,000. So, Sue Edwards gets married to a rich man and has her lover kill her new husband. But all the while, she's still in a relationship with Richard Davis. So with that $300,000, she buys herself a new Corvette and uses it to visit Davis every weekend while he is serving time at California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo. The couple, they get engaged. Now she's a free woman, right? So she told Davis that she would wait for him. The whole thing was a ploy. She got married and then she convinced the lover to kill him so she didn't have any blood on her hands. That's, that's insane. It was all a plan that they had concocted together. Wow. Yes, I know. So she gets engaged to Davis, but with all this new money, she's a free woman. She really doesn't want to wait. So she breaks her engagement to Davis and this breaks poor Davis's heart. So what's he going to do? Turn on her. Investigators were kind of suspicious of what was going on with Edwards. And Davis is going to call those investigators. And they're able to put her on charges of bigamy, actually, because technically she was Edwards isn't her like real last name. It's her maiden name. She was married before she met Davis to someone named Edwards. So she had never gotten divorced from this Edwards guy when she married the man who was rich. So she was charged with bigamy. Wow. Yes. And, And conspiracy to commit murder. Don't okay. forget. That's yeah, a pretty serious one. one. Yeah. And who testified against her for her whole plan? Richard Davis. Oh, my God. So Sue Edwards was serving six years in jail. She was actually only halfway through her prison term when Richard Davis is paroled in 1993. So now she's in jail and he's out. So it was basically his revenge against her. It's pretty good. Yeah. So Davis seemed to everyone that was watching that he was straightening out he wanted to do the right thing once he was paroled he moved into a homeless shelter in san mateo he met um with his parole officer and any other appointment that he had he passed all of his drug tests he found a job doing the sheet metal work at which he was proficient with and soon he had enough money to buy himself a ford pinto Now, that's the vehicle that he's going to be driving the night that Polly Class was kidnapped. No one knows for sure what happened that night to Polly. The story comes out little by little from Davis, and it sometimes contradicts itself and most of the time doesn't make sense. He said that he went to Petaluma to get money from his mother, and while he was there, he bought weed. And he said that the the weed that he bought was laced with PCP. But we know that this isn't true. Because as for his parole, he has to get tested once a week for drugs. He had to be tested the day after Polly's abduction. He did show up to that drug testing appointment. 
and he was cleared of all drugs. He said he remembered breaking into the house, but not why he did. He doesn't know why he picked that house, and he doesn't really remember what happened once he got inside. Davis claimed that when the police um, stopped him at the Jaffe's property, that he had Polly gagged in nearby bushes, and that when he went back to get her, she said, I thought you left me, almost as if she was glad that he came back. Now, I don't know if this is like a fabrication or Davis is taking after his father and he's beginning to hallucinate, but this can't be true because when you look at the crime that was committed at the class house, the all girls were put, all girls had hoods put on their heads. So there was some type of premeditation here. First for him to know how many hoods to make, what to do, the way the girls say that the whole like crime happened, it seems like this guy had his faculties about him. He was talking to them. He was lucid. He wasn't like some crazed man who just ran in the house. Like this, I believe, was premeditated. Also, he needed to know where the mother was sleeping in order to navigate the house without being detected, you know, right? so he wouldn't be detected. Exactly. So he said that he killed her because he wanted to get rid of any witnesses. He claimed that he didn't molest or rape her. Um, I mean, he didn't really claim that. He... Um, well, first he says, I don't think so. And then he swears that he didn't. So I, I don't know. Eventually, Davis led investigators to the location of where he buried the 12-year-old girl. He brought them to a shallow grave that he had dug just off the highway, just off of Highway 101, about a mile south of the city limits in Cloverdale, California. Davis was charged with first-degree murder um, with special circumstances, kidnapping and attempted lewd acts on a child. When they did find Polly's body, it was inconclusive um, if there was any sexual assault because of the time passed from the murder and discovery of the body. So they couldn't determine indefinitely whether or not she was sexually assaulted. But the way she was found, her skirt was brought up um, above her waist. So it did appear that there was ludax done on the child. Unfortunately, I'd I'd probably lean towards that there was sexual assault also because of the evidence that they found in, in the, in the woodsy area, With they the found condom. a condom. Yeah. They found a lot of other things over there. So, I mean, it's, I, I would lean towards that. Unfortunately. Yes, I know. I mean, I don't know what the other motivations he would have would be. So I would unfortunately have to say, I agree with you on that one. So Davis, like I said, was charged. His charges were first-degree murder with special circumstances, kidnapping, and attempted lewd acts on a child. The state was seeking the death penalty. He was convicted on June 18, 1996, of all charges. After reading the guilty verdict, Davis gave two middle fingers to the whole courtroom. So that's that's how remorseful he is about the whole thing. Right. On the day that his daughter, on the day that his daughter's murderer was to be sentenced. This is whether or not he's going to be put to death. Mark Class told the jury that if it didn't, Mark Class told the courtroom that if it did not sentence Davis to death, it would allow evil to triumph over good. And then he turned to the defendant, Davis himself, and said, Mr. Davis, when you get to where you're going, say hello to Hitler, to Dahmer, and to Bundy. Good riddance, and the sooner you get there, the better we'll all be. So... Richard Allen Davis was allowed to address the court. He again asserted that he had not sexually abused the victim, but the way that he made this claim shocked the courtroom. And I would say to me, victimized the class family all over again. Davis said, the main reason I know I did not attempt any lewd acts that night was because of a statement the young girl made to me while we were walking up the embankment. She said, just don't do me like my dad does, implying that her father sexually assaulted her. Yeah, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. He No, this is Davis being an asshole yeah. to Mark Class and trying to... Right, this is his way of coming back at him yes. after what he just said. But the, the Correct. honestly, I feel like when these people are up being, you know, we're about to find out what the verdict is, they shouldn't be allowed to speak. Like I think <laughs> if if the judge is doing the sentencing, then they should be allowed... To write a statement to the judge and the judge can read it. I don't think that they should be given any type of platform whatsoever because now he just re-victimized that whole entire family. That's what I'm saying. When you know, some, especially when they are not uh, 
remorseful. I mean, the guy's sticking middle fingers out right. towards people. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I wouldn't let this guy speak at all. I agree with you. So after he said that, a gasp went up in the courtroom and Mark Klaas shrieked, I hope you burn in hell, Davis. And the guards actually had to take him out of the courtroom. And they said the like there were so many spectators who just started crying. It's so sad. It is sad. And it's like that's that's like the final dagger that this guy could have done. Like the the yeah. worst thing you could ever like well, first of all, he did the worst thing you could ever possibly do to somebody. Um, but then to make a accusation like that about the girl's father. Horrible. Horrible. So the jury recommended that Davis be sentenced to death. Judge Thomas Hastings said to Davis that his recent and repulsive statements against the victim's father made it very easy to pro- to pronounce the death sentence upon you. And that's exactly what the judge did. Because the judge is kind of like saying it's very difficult to impose a death sentence. I don't take it lightly, but with you, it was re- it's very easy to say those words. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it was just the perfect opportunity for him to say that. But I think going into that, the moment he saw that him put up middle fingers yeah, the judge and be was remorseful, like, he was like, oh, yeah. you can go fuck yourself. Yes. Now you're dead. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, I mean, I don't think that one statement did it. Oh, maybe it did. But I think that the moment that he realized that he was not oh, remorseful yeah, totally. at all. I mean, maybe that's why I'm not a judge. But, I mean, obviously, I, you look at the guy. He's not remorseful. Giving the middle finger out. I don't think he really cares. Right. And you can tell by his entire past that he's never cared about anything yes. he's done. So he seems to, even though he is sentenced to jail several times and for different amounts of time, each like nothing's ever enough and he's not learning his lesson. So he's really not contributing to society in any way. No, Rather, well, he he's a detriment. Has. I mean, he's never, he never has. Yeah. And I feel like people like that, they relish in the opportunity to cause havoc, you know, disrupt people people's lives and then just go right back to jail he doesn't phase a person like that and i feel like at that point the only thing you can do i mean of course when the crime you know fits the punishment but the only thing you can do it to escalate it further is to put him to death i mean there's nothing else there's no way of reaching anybody else you can't fix somebody like that no i don't think there's rehabilitation for him so mark class is going to clench his fist and pump it into the air when the sentence was handed down He was really happy. We're grateful for the verdict that we got, he said, because this is the verdict that is deserved. Richard Allen Davis deserves to die for what he did to my child. So Klaas um, says that he's going to look forward to watching Davis die. The last thing Polly saw before she died was Richard Allen Davis's eyes. And the last thing that Richard Allen Davis will see is my eyes. I hope. But so far, Mark Klaas has not gotten his wish the death penalty has been upheld in all of davis's appeals however on march 13th 2019 california governor gavin newsom issued an executive order to suspend the death penalty so now davis's execution date is unknown and actually in an interview that we watched mark class was not a happy camper um, he said he was there at the um, he was there when Newsom is going to suspend the death penalty in California. And he said that nobody knew that it was coming. So it was like a shock. And he feels very betrayed by Newsom. And he has some very interesting and choice words to say. But and during the interview, you can tell that this man is still so hurt and angry about what happened to his daughter. I mean, we know he had a wonderful relationship with his daughter and her life was taken away. But even during the interview, he's, he's literally, there's a table in front of him and he's gripping it. Like he's, he's pissed. I don't know what's going to happen with the California legislator or whether or not they're going to continue again, the death penalty, or they're going to take it off the table. But this is very similar to the Megan Kanka case in New Jersey. When, her rapist and murderer was um, spared the death penalty because it was taken away by the state. It's it's very similar. It does cause a lot of heavy emotions and people get really upset about it. So it is, it's interesting and we definitely want to follow it in real time. Yeah. And look, everybody has a different opinion and it's a very, it sparks a lot of debate, but I mean, I guess it's just 
of how you are as a person and what you deem is, you know, acceptable and, you know, you know, whether or not it fits the punishment or not. I mean, I don't know. I mean, personally for me, I mean, with someone like this, I would lean towards the death penalty. That's just my personal belief. And I would never want to push that on anybody. But for me, that's just how I feel. I mean, somebody like that, you know? Yeah. And, and that's where it's a, it gets complicated. It's always hard when emotions are involved in laws and and this is it's it's complicated what i do understand 100 percent is is the anger of mark class absolutely and this is a case that is so intense when it comes to just the life period of richard allen davis but then the the tragedy and the tragedy of the abduction of Polly class and how davis became a real life boogeyman for a lot of people and a lot of parents think my kid's safe going to a sleepover, and he made everyone think twice. Yeah, it's true. So it's, it's really unfortunate. Yeah. And my heart goes out to those families, so. I know. Well, guys, that brings episode 71 to an end. And we do apologize for this episode being a week later than it was supposed to be. But, you know, as you can tell, I'm super, super sick. And that was um, obviously a pre-recorded episode that we needed to pull out of the banks of true crime couple because (laughs) yeah i am so sick i the doctors think it's bronchitis so nobody worry it's not coronavirus somebody did ask if i was pregnant my mom would be really happy but no (laughs) we're not sorry to disappoint yeah but um we are going to get back on track next week with another episode and we will have our patreon episodes out we do appreciate all the well wishes and you guys being so supportive of us because we are human. So yeah, I mean, things happen. Yeah. So we appreciate your understanding and, you know, we will uh, continue to provide uh, quality podcasts. Yeah. And we hope you enjoyed our episode on poly class. It's one of my favorite episodes that we covered. And I think it's something that we really wanted to bring to everyone to um, bring attention to not only just the case, but uh, one of the most more fascinating ones. I think we did. I agree. All right, guys, we will see you next week. Bye, guys. Bye.